free drop here, no doubt. Yeah, free drop. Whoa, that thing came out sideways. Drove it into the penalty area. Whoa, yeah. Oh, that was a shank. It's hard to believe watching this. Made an unbelievable bogey in the drop zone. Hello, folks. This is Sean Zock. It is Sunday night of the Players' Championship. I am joined by Dylan DeChair, a man who is down to the Players' Championship all week long. And uh, what a week it was. We're going to buzz through a ton of topics because it was a really long week. I almost feel like we should have done multiple podcasts this week, but we treated you guys to a Keegan Bradley interview late last week. That was multiple. That counts. Yeah. Hopefully you enjoyed that, but we have a lot of topics to get to, Dylan. I guess we should start with the actual champion of the tournament and how the tournament played out, and then we'll get to the... The players meeting and all the kind of drama that you saw firsthand down there. You were talking to James Hahn. Uh, you were talking to Rory about James Hahn. And so there's a lot of good juicy stuff to get to, which is why this will be probably an hour long podcast. But anyways, Scotty Scheffler wins. Scotty Scheffler doesn't just win though, right? Scotty wins by five, 17 under, five north of Tyrrell Hatton, seven north of Victor Hovland. And uh, this is one of the most defining victories we've had, I don't know, maybe since Scotty's win at the Masters last year. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's his biggest win since his win three weeks ago, I guess. Um, But like in terms of like victories that happen on the PGA Tour, which was more defining than what we just saw, which was more impressive than this one? I I don't know if there's been one. I don't know. I mean, we're in this revolving door where Scotty Scheffler and John Rahm and to a lesser extent, Rory McIlroy have done some things that really uh, turn your head. But this was commanding. This was a week where those other two guys exited stage left. I mean, a weird week for John Rahm, mm-hmm. who, <laughs> who you know, lacked intestinal fortitude, maybe. Some sort of illness kept him... Uh, kept him out. Rory got out of the gates not well, uh, missed the cut. And Scotty Scheffler of that new big three shredded the field. I mean, played so much better than anybody else. Um, if you look at the last three tee times today, nobody shot better than 74 which is a combination of, you know, some pressure, some stress, but I think a large part of it was weather conditions. The wind picked up, the greens were getting a little bit firmer. Mm. Scotty Scheffler played defensive down the stretch and shot 69, shot three under, kept expanding his lead while everyone else kind of plummeted around him. He had the best score in the final 10 groups, I believe. Um, So he just took a lead to Sunday and then played really, really, really good golf. He's the number one golfer in the world. Somehow we are right back here. And then now, as you look back on his resume, you know, his last nine starts on the PGA tour, his worst result is T 12. Like his, his resume right now looks a lot like the one we were just talking about with John Rahm a couple weeks ago, coming off his last win. And it just means Scotty's back and it's impressive as hell. You got to tip your cap. Um, there's, there's other stuff to say, but above all, yeah, he's the best golfer in the world. And I feel confident about that. And I just felt confident about saying that about John Rahm a minute ago. So I don't know how to make sense of it all. It was not that long ago that we recorded, I think like a 30 minute podcast alternating, uh, a list of players we thought were the top 30 players in the world. And 
we put Rory number one that week. Yes. <laughs> then John Rahm took the title for a little bit, and now Scotty took the title. What is uh, annoying to me about that um, debate of, of who's best is that, like, all these guys want to do is just win everything that's in front of them, and they don't just get the, the best title um, for doing it one week. And, like, Scotty was asked about the world golf rankings, and finally he just admitted it and said it out loud, said something that everyone should know is it's just an algorithm. Like, there's going to be weeks where he drops down the ranking and he finished top 25. And I, I guess I'm I'm projecting – and a grievance of how we treated the world ranking over the past like three or four months when people were dragging it. Tiger was talking bad about it. John Rahm was talking bad about it. Every live golf fan in the world has been talking bad about it. And it's kind of settled that debate for a while because the best players in the world have like made themselves far and away a class above everyone else. And now it feels like since they're so much higher than everyone else, when they win the big events, they they are actually number one. Like John Rahm winning at Riviera, we're like, damn right, he is number yeah. one. Finally, it says it next to his name. Scotty winning this week, damn right, he is number one. It says it right next to his name. Whoever wins the Masters, if it's John Rahm or Scotty Scheffler, and maybe even if Rory does, they might become number one that week. And so we've kind of hit this lovely little equilibrium at, at the top where – if your name is atop the leaderboard that week, you're actually going to be atop the ranking too. Scotty has now gapped the field a little bit in terms of world ranking. He's at 10.4 points. Uh, this is average points per event over a two-year period. Uh, John Rahm, 9.17 points. Rory McIlroy, 8.89 or 8.9 points. Um, so Scotty has a little bit of a gap there, and then Rory has a significant lead over Patrick Cantlay, who's fourth. Cameron Smith is fifth. Max Homa, sixth now. Holy cow. Sneaky. Jumped Xander. Uh, that is a career high. I was going to say low. Career low number. Career high ranking for Max Homa. So a lot of things are kind of coming clear as we enter major championship season. But I, I want to. I've got a question yeah, for you. Bring Dylan. it on. Does Scotty Scheffler do it for you? I'm not going to tell you what do it means. Yeah, no, you're in. Scotty Scheffler do it for you? Question is clear. Um, yes, but I think what I want out of Scotty Scheffler <laughs> to to do it for me as this world number one is a little bit more alpha dog. I want to see. Yeah, a little more cockiness. I mean, my man just won the players by five. He left his <laughs> rivals. He left his rivals in the dust. They didn't even make the weekend, or they struggled to to make the weekend. You know, Patrick Cantlay, I guess, Max Homa were fighting to be in the top 10 or top 20. Uh, Victor Hovland really backdoored his way into a podium finish. But if you look at the top 10, top 15 golfers in the world, no one else was contending to beat Scotty Scheffler. I mean, he was, he was out nope. there dueling with Minwoo Lee and Chad Ramey and the fellas. He just was in a class of his own this week. The players is weird, man. It's a weird tournament. It's it's a different type of golf course. Guys are counting by twos on awful lot out there. Uh, precision seems really rewarded. And missing in the wrong spot is is 
roundly punished. So for Scotty to go ahead and dominate anyway, it just is a reminder that he can win anywhere. This is such a complimentary victory because it just adds another wildly different golf course to his resume, which already included this wide variety of different types of courses. So back to my question. Oh, does he do it for me? Sorry. Does, I'll, I'll, does he do it? Does he do it for you? And why do I have to ask the question? He does it for me, but he's like, it's a, it's probationary. Like he has to, he has to continue to earn his crown as world number one. Basically he's got to act like it. I mean, he doesn't have to, he can, he should continue to be himself, of course, but I know that there is a version of Scotty and a, I think that the guy that Scotty is involves a little more trash talk, involves a little more smack talk, involves letting the people around him know that he is better than they are. And I don't mean better, like morally superior or anything like that. I just mean better at golf. And I think that that's, that's what sports are all about. Figuring out who's the best. Scotty Scheffler is the best right now. I want to make sure that he lets us know that he knows it. Yeah. I mean, Damon Hack interviewed him after his win and, Scotty was just all smiles and basically was like, yeah, you know, I'm just trying to get better. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, okay, dog, you just, you just lapped the field. You gained 17 strokes on the tour average this week. That is, that is an absolute boatload of just playing better golf than the rest of the PGA tour, which are the greatest golfers in the world. And, uh, I would like him to acknowledge it and maybe he will at some point. Um, but you know who would acknowledge it? Like, Justin Thomas, I think, would. John Rahm just John Rahm yeah. certainly would. <laughs> uh, Brooks Kepka in his heyday totally would. Rory in his own Tiger way. Tiger would do it in a certain way. Yeah, Rory in his own way. Phil Mickelson for sure in his own way. And at this point, Scotty's own way of telling you that he's better than you is not publicized. Um, or if it is, it's, you know, with his hand on the trophy and his other arm around his wife and just kind of being like, yeah, I got another one. Um and so uh, as we were preparing to talk, I was, I was thinking about that because there's certainly discourse online that are people calling him boring. Um, I've spent some time around him. I know you interviewed him a month ago and for a long time you had lunch with him and our interactions with Scotty and our knowledge of him don't give off boring. There is certainly more there. I think he just maybe has a little bit of a public facing boringness. Uh, you can tell he doesn't really love press conferences, <laughs> kind of puts up with them in, in much the similar way Dustin Johnson once did. Um, but yeah, Scotty, like at this point, he's a little bit Mike Trouty for me. <laughs> it's like, you are, you are sick. Yeah. Dude. You are one of the best players in your sport on the planet. And you've, you've been that good at every stage of your life. But when the league doesn't do enough to kind of put you out there and you don't really put yourself out there more, there remains something to be desired, I guess. Um, and like that, I don't know. I don't know if we're going to get that from Scotty yeah. is kind of my, I don't, and I don't know if, I don't know that we need it from him because I think if he continues to play golf at the level that he's playing, he is an effective kind of foil for these other guys, but there's no question that he brings something different to the table and, less less dynamic i guess from a drama perspective and from an ego perspective than when brooks or bryson uh would be you know contending to be in the top five at least i don't think they you know you know where we're gonna see it what we're gonna see it in rome 
which is a long way from now, <laughs> you know, at the Ryder Cup. It's more than six months from now. I guess now. so, but the whole, you know, the whole golf world could be different by then. Yeah, I'm just, I know we're going to see it then because we saw it at the President's Cup. Uh, we saw him take down Rom at the Ryder Cup in, in Whistling Straits. And I, I know, and they say this about everybody who's a winner, but like the level of competitiveness that courses through Scotty, it is, it's, it's really, 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 really high. I mean, this guy was diving all over the uh, paddleboard courts against mm, Dirk Nowitzki yeah. and Jordan Spieth and Tony Romo and, like, hurting himself in the process. He, like, skinned up his wrist and skinned up his elbow during the fall. And it's like, dude, what are you, you're a golfer. What are you doing? Um, like, that level of competitiveness exists. I think we see it in Rome. I just want to see it sometime before yeah. now. Well, well, and I think, now and I think that we're... I think we're prisoners of the moment here to some extent. I think we're all prisoners of the moment. Everyone that was watching today and saying, you know, this is, this isn't really doing it for me. I mean, this was a blowout win. Scotty did everything better than everyone else this week. He was fifth in strokes gained off the tee. He was fourth in strokes gained approach. He was fourth in strokes gained around the green. So he was top five in the field in driving <laughs> in iron play in, uh, in, chipping basically getting up and down yeah he wasn't even until he made that last putt on 18 he was worse than average on the greens because he was just <laughs> out out striking it he gained overall over 17 strokes on the field basically he's doing everything very well right now and that i think it was a boring tournament from a competitive standpoint which meant that we didn't get that big moment i mean if that putt is to win on 18 by one shot if that's to break a tie or, yeah. or maintain a one shot lead i think everything's a lot different i think if there are other characters close to him that we know then i think things are different but i think just the nature of the victory is partly why uh why yeah. it's like raising these questions because he was he took the air out of the balloon um even though it's funny you never know until a ball lands on that 17th green that that things are completely over but even there, yeah. like again and again, Scotty basically hit he hit the the conservative shot, um, which was I don't know, Tiger esque is a lazy way to describe any of these yeah. things, but yeah, he 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 plotted his way around it very effectively. He's he's a simple dude too. Like uh, as much as we might want a little bit more out of his public facing persona. He's a simple guy. I mean, I remember talking to his wife last year, and I was like, what's bothering Scotty right now? He's winning every damn tournament he plays in. What's bothering him? And she's like, oh, he gets really bothered by the shape of his backyard and, like, if there are leaves that are blowing into their backyard pool. <laughs> like, man is a simple, simple dude. Um, and so I think the Ryder Cup pulls something out of you and there's a little bit more angst um that week and so we'll see a different maybe a different scotty that week i do kind of want to see him battle yes and hopefully we get it at augusta hopefully we get it in austin yeah. the last match play and hopefully we get it at augusta mm. um yeah but i i just like don't i want to i guess we've already made it pretty clear but we've we've turned sideways into what scotty's like as a dude but in terms of recapping this week, like, God, what a performance. Did you ever think Minwoo Lee was going to do it? Uh, I thought there was a chance because Scotty had the lefts going early on. And mm -hmm. Minwoo all Saturday was 
really, really impressive, really fun to watch. And then there was just, he played a really weird fourth hole. He had just drawn even because Scotty made bogey at three. Minwoo had birdied one. So that two shot lead had vanished. It was now a tie. Minwoo Lee chips out onto the fairway after a bad drive on four and then just dumps his wedge shot into the water short. Uh, Really, really weird. Makes triple bogey. From that point on, the tournament was not in doubt at any point, really. Um, There were guys within a a few shots of Scotty at one point, but no, I mean, he held steady. He then birdied eight, birdied nine, birdied 10, birdied 11, birdied 12, and suddenly had a six-shot lead. The rest is history. Uh, but yeah, there was a moment early today where I was like, okay, this isn't the Scotty versus Rom versus Rory thing we were all setting up for, yeah. but Minwoo Lee is a pretty fun guy to have in the mix. And he and a bunch yeah, of other guys fives. cost themselves a lot of money and a lot of points by uh, various water-related activities. Yeah, you wrote about that. What did they lose? Yeah, I just did a quick roundup basically of these guys. And the the summary was that there were a lot of guys that played early and went low or played in the middle of the day and went low and moved way up. And there were a lot of guys that played later in the day that moved way down. Uh, and a couple of those happened in a couple different shots. I mean, you look at Aaron Rye was right there. He made triple on 17, which bumped him from the edge of the top five to the edge of the top 20. That's a big deal. Uh, Chad Ramey doubled number one and then he doubled number 18. So he had this bookend of, brutality and and he was even par for the rest of the day tommy fleetwood was in position then he doubled 14 and he doubled 17 and all the hard work he'd he'd done up to that point got undone he moved from fourth at the start of the day to 27th by the end of the day uh taylor montgomery was maybe the most brutal of all because he was three under for the day he was 10 under for the tournament which only a few guys got to all week and then, boom, makes bogey from the bunker on 15. 16, he just takes a bunch of chips and a bunch of putts and makes double. 17, he hits it in the water off the tee, drops, hits it in the water again. Suddenly, Sean, he's not third. He's not T3. He's not T4. He's T44. And that <laughs> is about a million-dollar loss. Um And, yeah, that, I mean, there there was a lot of movement on the leaderboard. I want to talk about our runner-up. Unless you, yeah. am I missing anyone? Are there any other? I mean, Cam Davis no one I care about. had a really, really Washington uh, resident, Seattle resident, Cam Davis had a really good week, encouraging week. He's been injured. He's been battling some stuff. He dumped one in the water on seventeen, so he cost himself a bunch of cash and probably moved from what, like T three to T six or something, but still finished T6. So like that just feels like a win. And Minwoo Lee had a hard day to define, made two sevens, um, you know, made a, a bunch of bogeys in the middle, but then birdies 16, birdies 17, and then bogeys 18. So he was T6 also. But T2, no, not T2, solo second, Tyrrell Hatton. <laughs> shot seven under, including seven under, on his back nine, including birdies at his final five holes. I mean, it was this funny, funny thing, Sean, where I've never seen Tyrrell Hatton so content and so happy as sitting with Mike Tirico in the booth afterwards. 
Um, were yeah. you watching that interview? Yes, I was. It was it was like a testament to golf, I guess. Like this, there's just no way to play a round of golf that satisfying and not come away almost like giddy almost a little like punch yeah. drunk. He was like giggling, watching himself walk up the 18th hole, smiling. And I tweeted out a photo of this, but it was like Tyrrell smiling in the replay. And then Tyrrell in the broadcast uh, chair, also like smiling at that thought because he played a back then almost perfect, almost perfectly. You know, what's great about that is that giddiness is something that exists in every golfer, especially like amateur golfers who like there's so much more room for perfect uh, or for growth when it comes to players of like my level, like single digit handicap who is capable of shooting 76, but is also capable of shooting 96. And so the days on which you shoot 76 and you feel like you've reached this new peak are days in which you just smile. You're giddy. You are walking around the clubhouse like golf is easy. This is you like, and this is like Sean Zock <laughs> coming home in like, you know, 35 or something. You just, you <laughs> like, you're like, I mean, all right, I shot whatever, 42 on the front nine, 44 even. But then, yeah. God damn, everything went well on the back. Just th- made some yeah. putts, like got some good bounces. Like, how could I possibly be any more content than I am right now? And Tyrrell Hatton is yeah. generally the opposite of that. He is the most dissatisfied man on a golf course. And he even was joking about that. He was saying, you know, I actually do like TPC Sawgrass. Someone asked him for his thoughts on the course. He was like, it's, it's sort of not what I'm supposed to say. But yeah, I like this course. And uh, finally, he was like, I don't really like the eighth hole, that 235-yard par three. Like, we don't really need that. I feel like I need to say something negative. But. Um, that was a moment that was, that was one of my enduring moments from the week was Tyrrell hat. And I guess it's worth noting you made $2.7 million on top of it. Yeah. Well, I was really worried about what he was going to be like finishing because he goes when he makes six birdies on the back through the first eight holes and he's coming up 18 and he blows his drive, right? Mm -hmm. Blows it into the trees, into the pine straw. And then he hits. Yeah. And he hits maybe the greatest iron shot he's hit in the last 12 months or something like that. Like he, he hits this perfect shot that Evan priest for golf. I just said, it's the, one of the best shots, maybe the best shot he's ever seen live. Um, I guess it was this kind of stinging, like probably a long iron. Um, yeah. Under three yards tree under the tree branches that had so much cut spin. You can get a ton of, uh, that cut backspin off of pine straw and, people just expected it while it was in the air to go bounding through the green, but it kind of hit just short of hole high and then like sat at hole high. And of course he makes the birdie. We were very close to Tyrrell maybe hitting it into the water on 18 or bounding through the green, having a horrendous chip back and forth, maybe making double and then throwing his ball into the lake and being typical Tyrrell instead he makes birdie, <laughs> makes two point seven million, and then is this giddy, smiley version that we've actually never seen before. Um, and it was kind of fun to watch him address that. I guess you want to talk about early week drama. Is there anyone else yeah, on the man. leaderboard that you'd like to run through? Nah, let's talk about the players meeting. What was weird is that we knew this. Like, I think the PGA Tour wants to keep these meetings um, secretive. They don't. They don't really want you to know. They're when not they're public events. Board meetings. Yeah. 
They don't want you to know when the PAC is meeting, um, the Player Advisory Council. They don't want you to know when, hey, we got a lot of information that we need to share with our membership. They just don't want that because what does it lead to? It leads to people talking. It leads to people um, complaining about the time of the meeting. And it leads to people like yourself walking around asking questions. Guys, so who was all there? Who wasn't there? It, it, it becomes this um, like taking attendance roll, roll call kind of thing. Uh, in the beginning of what is supposed to be the most important week of the season for the PGA yes. Tour. So anyways, that was Tuesday morning. I believe it was 7.30 a.m. local time. And um, I'm curious what the thoughts were before it and immediately after it from someone who was on the ground. Yeah, there's this weird thing where now Players Week has become um, – it's become a way to evaluate the PGA Tour product overall. It's become like a, a – a time to like mark where this tour sits in the world. I mean, it's funny, even in 2020, there was talk about a rival tour. Guys were starting to address it for the first time. Rory was saying, Oh yeah, he doesn't love where the money's coming from. And then, you know, it became a state of the union of actually just the world and the sports world, because then the sport shut down, everything shut down everywhere. Um, I flew home to New York. We got dinner. I went home to see my parents in Massachusetts, you know, with one backpack, ended up staying there for three months. Anyway, <laughs> here we are this year, and Jay Monahan is giving a, a basically State of the Union address and talking to the press for the first time in a while, and players are getting the description of their future. And there's two interesting things about this to me. One is the way... We see it the way the product appeals to the viewer or doesn't appeal. It doesn't have to. Um, and then the other is the way players react to it. And so on the ground, I guess that was the interesting thing to figure out is, okay, what do people really think of this? And the top guys are all in agreement on it or generally in agreement on it with slight disputes because they were the ones that decided it. And I think yep. that a lot of people are down with the general format but actually where they end up taking exception is in some details. Like the rank and file PJ tour members, they end up seeming upset or some of them end up seeming upset. But when you get down to it, it's like, okay, no, we're like upset because these are going to be 750 points, these big time events to the winner. And we think they should be like 10% less, something like that. 15% mm -hmm. less. Like it's not a chasmic difference. And ultimately, it's hard to really speak out if you're upset. It's hard to totally be like, yeah, Why? I hate this. Because, Sean, if you are speaking out, if you are being upset, if you're saying, I hate these changes, you are outing yourself, you're as, telling on yourself. as saying, <laughs> I am not confident that I'm going to be in the top 50 in the FedEx Cup at the end of this year. I do yeah. not necessarily think I don't think know I'm if I in, have. Yeah, I don't know if I've got that. And an interesting... A uh, message came from Eddie Pepperell at the start of the week. He was tweeting about how this could potentially affect Live versus the PGA Tour. I thought his point was interesting. I did not think it was correct. But he was saying, well, maybe guys that fall out of the top 50 would be more likely to go to Live. And he cited Tyrrell Hatton as an example. Tyrrell Hatton now finished second because he had been 60-something in the, in the FedEx Cup. Yeah. There's a lot of golf left this FedEx Cup season 
the cream will rise to the top. If guys outside the top 50 are more likely to go to live, then that means that live would just be getting more guys that feel like they're on the decline rather than on the ascent. So I think that player objections, I think are interesting on the margins, but I feel like big picture, not that many people are doubting that this is the correct move. That's what I had a hard time understanding because I've talked to players about this since February. We had a feeling that there were going to be smaller events coming. It was being discussed definitely on the driving range, but also certainly uh, being referenced vaguely in press conferences. And so we kind of knew something was coming. Um, and I think most players just felt like it wasn't going to get decided right this second. Like there were still going to be opportunities to figure it out. And I think if anyone is upset on the rank and file side of things, it's that it all got decided in the moment, in the boardroom, in the meeting last week. Yeah, they don't feel like maybe they have as made a, great of a voice. You talked to Keegan Bradley. He was upset that he wasn't really included uh, in yeah. terms of being a, uh, able to go to the Delaware meeting. But even uh, he was sort of so, upset in the sense of like, damn, that's a little bit of a gut check. Like he was almost, I don't know if he was embarrassed about it, but he was bummed that he's not seen as one of that core group. So yeah. I think guys are upset that they're left out of the decision-making process, but it's hard to really... It's hard to totally voice that without outing yourself as just not feeling like a top player. That's kind of what you're saying. Yeah. And you know what you get in other sports? You have like all-star games where guys get invited because they've been great performers. And then there are people left on the outside looking in who don't get to call themselves an all-star that year. And this is kind of a little bit of golf's version of that. Like we have thinned the idea of what it means to be elite. We went from, hey, if you are a top 125 FedEx cupper, you get to have your card come back next year. You're a tour member, you are elite. No, we've decided that elite is now 50. There is only 50 that are defined as the elite people, uh, the elite golfers. And I think that that hits hard for these guys who kind of all thought that they were elite. Um, and the truth is there are not 125 elite golfers in the world. There's probably 30 elite golfers if you want me to like spell it all out. <laughs> I think and that is a very hard area to define. But yeah. Yeah, it is. But like this is the first time it's actually been defined and it's been defined to determine access. Um, and I don't know. I it, it gets tricky when you compare it to other sports. We've been doing a lot of that lately. It's a really hard thing to do. But I just did it when I just describing this as like the PGA Tours all stars. Um, but I'm okay with it because um, because I'm not one of those guys that's going to be finishing 70th. I think I have gone from being really, really in favor of this to being mostly in favor and still having a lot of sympathy for guys that are uh, are now told that being good is not enough. You got to be great. Yes. You have to be very good. I don't know, whatever top 50 is. Yeah. I, I think in the end, there's some general discontent around, yeah, the cool kids deciding everything. You know, it reminds me of, of like a, anytime there's a majority that are being told things by a smaller group, there's going to be a lot of muttering. 
but yeah, I, I don't think anyone disagrees fundamentally. I even talked to Lonto Griffin, who was one of the outspoken people in the meeting. Sounds like Lonto Griffin. Nate Lashley was getting involved. He was uh yeah. he was asking so some Hans questions. Pals. And um yeah, I mean James James Hahn not happy. James Hahn didn't even attend the meeting that had Rory a little bit peeved because he felt like, you know, here this guy is gonna be a rabble rouser and not even gonna show up. Um that was interesting. Anyway, even Lonto Griffin was basically saying, look, it makes sense that these guys get to decide stuff. I think they've gone a little bit too far. Fair. Mm-hmm. And I think where I think two areas where as a fan you can object to this, object to these changes. Number one would be the cut thing. I don't love the no cut thing. That feels completely like a nod to sponsors and not necessarily a nod to like a competitive product. Two would be if you reduce field sizes, you potentially have more blowouts. Like if you take out some of these guys from today, Scotty's competition might have looked a little bit thinner. It ended up that Hatton and Hovland being second and third, like those guys would clearly be in any sort of top 50 breakdown. But yeah, uh, I think they're good changes, Sean. And I think I'm, t- I am, I will say, here's what I'm sick of. I'm sick of. I'm sick of these top tour pros having to talk about their professional golf as a product. I understand why they have to do that. I understand that they are business people, that they are their own bosses, that it's in their best interest for the PGA Tour to be very sellable to sponsors and for TV rights to improve in the coming years or basically for you know when they renegotiate in five or six years, it is very important that this TV product is worth as much as possible. And look, when people go to the Genesis on Saturday and Sunday, it's nice that they can see uh, the guys that have made the cut. And if there's guys that missed the cut, they're probably sad that, okay, they didn't see Jordan Spieth this year. I think he missed the cut. Um so I get it, but yeah, I'm tired of I'm tired of these guys. I would rather that they don't have to talk about it as a product. I would rather hear executives or whoever else talk about it as a product yeah. and then the players talk about the game well, itself. The, and we're in a weird like zone the, here. Yeah, that's kind of the dog chasing its own tail thing a little bit where the PJ Tour has to um in order to be this 501c6 nonprofit, you know, the, a lot of its structure is to help PGA Tour players and it's a member owned organization. And so the players are in charge. And yet at some point, we kind of don't want them to be in charge. And you'd rather have the executives kind of making a call and like you roll out the carpet and see how easily people can walk down the path. Um, yeah, I feel you on that, on that sense. But, um, I think we've gone too far. Jay Monahan is a he's a more of a shadow character than he's going to be a front man. He kind of acknowledged um, that too. He talked about it in his State of the Union, or or he was asked about you know players taking control and sort of acknowledged that his role has has had to evolve and has had to change. And in this case, he's taking a little bit more of a backseat to these top players. Well, I mean, it's like when think about what the structure of the policy board is. The people who who write this stuff into law are five tour players and five business people that are (laughs) independent directors that have been pulled in from 
the rest of society. You have Jimmy Dunn, a guy who joined the board last year. Like he's a very connected person in the world of golf, but he doesn't work for the PGA Tour. Ed Herlihy is a lawyer. Uh, he's been on the board for a number of years. You know, he works as a director on the policy board for the PGA Tour, but he's not necessarily like he doesn't owe Jay Monahan anything. Yeah. Um, so it's definitely like a very weird structure, and hopefully we're not boring. Well, and death, ultimately, gotta... ultimately, like who do you think's making those calls? You know, it's it's if we're talking about business. And we've got five very accomplished business people in the room and then five dudes who are really good at shooting 65. I'm guessing that one of those groups is probably going to get their influence across. Mm, I don't know. The dudes shooting 65 are the bedrock of it all. Yeah, no, I just think that they're probably listening to those people. And um, so, yeah, they're, they're just kind of a... A shadow group running I mean, one, the of, one of those dudes was James Hahn for a long time. So uh, I got a I got a question on Instagram. Hey Sean from a drop zone follower. Big topic in my opinion on your podcast this week. Rory really needs to stop being the VP of marketing for the PGA Tour, and he needs to be a golfer again. Your thoughts? I think everyone would like that. I think that Rory would like that. I think, and I talked to him a little bit about this exact thing this week. He kind of acknowledged like, yeah, I'm a little getting a little overexposed basically. Like there's this weird cycle where Rory has asked things about politics on the PGA tour or in the professional golf world more generally. So he gets asked things, he answers them honestly and in a generally interesting way and sometimes in a spicy way somewhat dramatic way there's this whole ecosystem that we are a part of or say you know social media accounts are a part of these big instagram accounts will post his quotes here's what he said people get this sense like man we are hearing a lot from rory but it's not like rory is going out and just making declarations he's not even he's not on social media like he's not going out of his way to kind of take shots. He's just kind of a thoughtful guy that is a leader of the PJ tour. And so as a result, it feels like we are hearing too much from him on everything. And there's also a lack of other people filling that void. There's a few guys that are uh, Max Homa, sometimes Justin Thomas, John Rom, like a few other guys are speaking on this stuff. But the more Rory talks about it, the more he's then asked about it, and then the more he talks about it, and the more we are aware of everything that he says, even though all these other people are sort of talking about it too. So he's in a tough spot. I agree. The less Rory has to talk about the product, the less he has to be... Um, yeah, the more that he could just be a golfer, I think the better for everyone involved. He's the mascot right now, man. And also like the head coach and also like the point guard. It feels like he's playing all these different well, roles. Well, and it's all good when he's playing well, but this is what was so impressive about his 2022 is like he backed it up. He put a lot of extra pressure on himself. And then for the most part, he backed it up except for one day in Scotland. Um, so yeah, I think it's a really interesting thing. I think it speaks to the way the whole, uh, media world works to the way we consume things. And 
um, yeah, I think even Rory is aware of that and is probably, I don't know, probably properly pissed off after going to a lot of meetings and getting pretty worn out, probably not practicing as much as you would like to, probably not resting as much as you would like to, and then laying an egg at the players. Yeah. I mean, the guy was like two strokes from winning uh, the Arnold Palmer Invitational. We can't forget that. He did play poorly this week. I put a question out on Twitter in a very fun, stupid way. But is seven hours for a board meeting too much or just right? And I got responses all over the place. I got people saying, oh, it should be one and a half hours. That's poor leadership. Jay Monahan doesn't know what he's doing. Of course, Jay Monahan is not in a board meeting. Um, and then I got other people saying, We've spent six hours figuring out uh, the menu at our club. <laughs> the board meeting should last multiple days. Yeah. <laughs> like, damn, I felt like it's seven hours was a lot. It's a of long time. time. To be that is a long time for Tuesday of a designated event. Um, yeah, that's quite a bit. Sean, I've got a proposal for you. Little bit of strategic alliance talk this week, and mm. I wanted to pitch my vision for a study abroad program on the PGA tour. <laughs> this would be pretty simple. Really a PGA tour member gets to go abroad for a year, play on the DP world tour and essentially defer their status on the PGA tour. Think of this as kind of a gap year, a chance to go travel uh, Europe, travel the world. Really. If you look at the schedule that the DP world tour is playing, and this is like a chance for every tour player to, like live out that dream of being a 20 something just backpacking around Europe. I mean, if you think about the places that they go to and you talk about it with with players on the PJ tour, it's like, yeah, they don't want to ditch their tour status to go chase it in Europe, but if they had the chance to just do it for a year, you know, maybe with a couple buddies, maybe they've got a young family that they can bring around, but it's like, you know, they go to once they get to Europe, they go to Italy. They go to Belgium, they go to the Netherlands, they go to Germany, Sweden, uh, England, Denmark, Scotland, all these epic courses leading up to the Open Championship. The key to this is that you defer your status for a year, you come back and you get to pick up right where you left off. The DP World Tour gets some extra stars out of it. Uh, The PGA Tour doesn't lose anything. It feels more like a give and take alliance these american tour stars get to see the world they're more they're more cultured as a result <laughs> i mean honestly is would anyone do it probably not but i i really like this idea <laughs> well we, we definitely know martin trainer would do it but beyond him um are you saying that those places are a lot better than orlando and jacksonville and i'm saying and that there are Jupiter. fewer built-in golf fans in some of those places but i'm saying that yeah. I'm. This is this is maybe just me saying I w- I would like to defer covering the PGA Tour for a year and just go travel with mm. the DP World Tour for a year before returning. Yeah, that's definitely. I mean, Brooks Kepka did it right. He 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 stands for so many different things at this point in his career. But at one point in his career, he stood for going to Europe, getting better, coming back to America, and trying to dominate. His brother followed him down that path. Peter Uline went down that path. Kurt Kitayama, uh, last week's Kitayama. big winner. The what what's plausible about this is um, another thing that really wasn't mentioned during Jay Monahan's press conference, uh, at least wasn't followed up on, is that the PGA Tour 
as part of the strategic alliance is putting up a lot of money for your yes tour oh purses. yeah i think it's hugely underrated right now what is happening for the dp world tour it's just i think what some people want is for there to be an announcement of like hey we're sending a designated event over there something really splashy yeah. like that i think instead it's like hey we're funneling some sponsor money your way we're upping purses we're guaranteeing this and that and we're you know we're more officially connecting these two tours but I understand why yeah. that's somewhat unsatisfying. But man, the you only... get Max Homa and the fam to just travel Europe for a year and play on the DP World Tour. All of a sudden, that's kind of a game changer. Yeah. I think the I think guys would consider it if there was more money to be had over there. And they would consider it um gosh, the 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 toughest thing is that you never really know when you're gonna play your best golf. Mm. And so if you go over to continental Europe and you waste the best golf you've ever had against uh, worse fields and for less money and for less world ranking points and zero FedEx cup points and all that jazz. Um, I could see people consider that more of a loss because there's just such a, you know, you, you arrive and it's the goal is just to get to the absolute top. There's no, there's no goal in the journey quite as much as it maybe there used to be. Yeah. I think that that's fair and I wouldn't I would certainly wouldn't blame anyone um for for not wanting to do this but I just want to see some legislation introduced. Keith, if you're uh, listening to this, call me. Netflix has greenlit a second season yes. of Full Swing. Also a second season of the tennis show. We haven't even yeah, seen how about all that? the tennis show Breakpoint. Um and like frankly I thought the tennis show was interesting but it 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 can't have been as good as the golf one. I have high hopes for the second half yeah. of the tennis show season, I would say. The question is, what or who would you like to see uh, in season two of Full Swing? You oh. could say, I would like to see more of this, less of this, um, this character. Uh, yeah. What's on, on top of your list? Well, I think I think it's pretty simple, and I think... Well, look, I'm hardly an unbiased source here. I was in the first season. I'm hoping to be in the second season. I've talked to some people involved with the show. I think the really encouraging thing is that the people involved with making the show are pretty attuned to the feedback they've been getting. So in, in addition to, yes, you explained the cut way too many times, I think there's a sense that they've at least heard from fans that, yeah, it should be a little bit more chronological and that the flow of the season itself and the biggest events should be enough to carry it. So I would expect and I would hope that there will be a little bit less pinging around. Um, I think that that's going to happen. I think in terms of people I'd like to see, I'd like to dive into uh, – you know, Max Homa a little bit more. I would love to see a, a little bit of a build up to the Ryder Cup this year and get involved with some of yep. those European players. If it's Tyrrell Hatton, that would be awesome. Um, if it's Shane Lowry, if it's Tommy Fleetwood, if it's Seamus Power, I would be excited about, mm -hmm. you know, a whole bunch of guys like that. Um, so, yeah, I think culminating, culminating with... I think focusing on the biggest events, sending us to Augusta and letting us live there, sending us to these majors and yeah. and putting us in these places and just building up the actual drama of these events, I would love to see them rely more on that and then have hopefully the Ryder Cup as like the, the beacon at the end of the year. I, but I don't yeah. know what they're thinking on that front. Well, the schedule just makes so much sense for that. I mean, 
it, it was always going to be weird the way they pinged around from month to month um, to end on anything but the tour championship last yes. year. And they got very lucky in the sense that Rory said yes to an interview that week, then won the tour championship that week. Uh, it was the perfect ending, the perfect way to wrap an eight show or an eight episode um, first season. And the Ryder Cup feels like the most obvious thing. Like it, it feels even more obvious than whatever last year was because everyone talks about the Ryder Cup. Every podcast talks about the Ryder Cup. Every single month there are more points to be, you know, the the teams get clearer and clearer the way we go. Everyone thinks about it. There are 40 golfers that have a really good chance of being on those teams right now, and only 24 of them are going to make it. There might be another 10 that play their way into contention this year, and th that is all swarming uh, on its own kind of like beneath the surface and there's the live stuff. We don't even know if <laughs> if Poulter could right. make his way onto the team. Like it it is the kind of perfect thing to move towards. So Ryder Cup, yes. Um I think we're actually I'm guessing we'll see more Cam Smith Whoa. in the second season. Interesting. I'm just guessing that because um he played such a like huge role in um the 2022 season and i didn't like really get a whole lot of full swing credit for it mm -hmm. i think he probably got skittish at the time uh with all the live stuff happening to like really go on the record and, and show people what's going on in his life um he won the players last year he won the open last year and there's probably a ton of full swing footage from all that well i think it's gonna be interesting and to see how they handle the majors because that's probably where that's probably where we'll see the the live guys. Yeah. And that's where but we'll like, see these dynamics play out. If the show at, at its base is explaining characters, it's, it's little profiles of people yeah. and then telling the, the, the story of the tour through those people. Cam Smith has to be atop the list for who they want to tell the story through this year, because he's kind of the, the figure in pro golf that we don't really know if he's like really pissed about not, defending his title at the players um and we don't really know if he still has it like he had yeah. it last year if he wins another major this year like that's gonna be just a, a gigantic gigantic story i mean to and yeah, along so. those same lines an update on brooks kepka after his fascinating season one appearance is something i'm hoping for uh sean to be fully candid with you both my phone and my computer are about to die they are just on oh, the God. edge right here so um, I'm going to pretty much have to wrap things up and say thanks for a fantastic week and another great drop zone. <laughs> All right, kid. Go find yourself a charger. I'm going to go find a charger. I uh, hope everyone else gets recharged starting the week here. Sean, it's been a joy talking to you, as always. We'll see you soon. Peace. Peace.